We've come to the place where Solomon is dead and his son Rehoboam has taken his place as the next king. And he's just brand new. And now we're in 1 Kings 12 and all the people are anticipating what kind of a king is Rehoboam going to be. So Jeroboam, knowing that God has given him this kingdom and it's getting ready to be ripped apart, he gets a whole bunch of the people together with him and they approach Rehoboam formally on a day. And uh, the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, and Jeroboam is their spokesman, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we'll serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Now, you've probably heard this story many times. At least Rehoboam, as this young, inexperienced king, had the gumption to not make a rash decision, but to say, let me have a little time to mull this over. So he goes to his father's advisors, the advisors to the wisest man who ever lived, they were older men, and they'd been around the block a few times, and he asks them, how would you advise me to answer these people? And they told him the right thing to do. They said, be a servant leader and lay off the people a little bit because Solomon was pretty harsh with them. You see there, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they'll always be your servants. So then Rehoboam calls in his contemporaries, his peers, his new cabinet, the people that he considers the up and coming ends, the movers and the shakers. And he asks them, how would you say I should advise? And they tell him to be very, very harsh. And so he comes in and the three days is up and Jeroboam assembles with all of the people again. And uh, he says, this is what I think. My father made your yoke heavy. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. And they just went, <laughs> well, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. In other words, uh, no, you won't. See ya. And they turned around and left. So Rehoboam did try to get some military men from Judah together and pursue them and prevent this complete schism, but he wasn't able to, and God warned him, you better lay off or you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt. So he accepted it. Now the kingdom's torn in two. It's two different nations. So this is Jeroboam telling Rehoboam, uh, no, you won't. Goodbye. We're gone. We're no longer a part of your kingdom. So now you see this in 1 Kings 12. The king didn't listen to the people for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam. So now we see what happens when a person makes a conscious decision to reject the word of the Lord. Solomon was wise and he had the word of God and he spoke with God on more than one occasion. And yet, because of all of these foreign wives and perhaps his desire to keep peace with all their dad's countries, it was more important for him to play nice and 
placate his wives than it was to say, I'm drawing a line in the sand here. We only worship the God of Israel here, and I don't marry foreign women. And, uh, and so that conscious decision was rebellion, and it cost him the kingdom. But then there was this guy, Jeroboam, that has taken over. So now we don't call this country Israel anymore. We call it Northern Israel and Judah. So the one country up here has its capital city in Samaria, and that's where King Jeroboam is now going to reign. And he is the rightful king, and God put him there, and it was okay. And then down here in Jerusalem, which is a part of Judah, we still have the descendant of David, Rehoboam, on the throne. And so if we were really going to take weeks and weeks to explore the entire history of the nation of northern Israel, we'd have to cover 222 years and look at 20 different rulers. But basically, bottom line, I can sum it up by saying there wasn't a good one in the bunch. None of them completely uh, followed after God. But I want to show you what happened with King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam got to thinking about how in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, there was Solomon's glorious temple, and there's the priests and the worship and the sacrifices and where you're supposed to have Passover and all those things. And he got worried that this new kingdom that he had, and boy, this power, this tastes delicious, and this is exactly what I always wanted, and I'm going to love being king. And then he thinks about, oh, when it gets time for the feasts and the festivals, the people are going to go down there to Jerusalem and they're going to get kind of homesick for the way things were. And they're going to go back to Rehoboam. And I don't want that. So he has a golden calf made. And doesn't that remind you of what happened when they were out in the wilderness in the days of Moses and Aaron? And he tells the people, it's too far for you to go all the way down there to Jerusalem to worship God. And so we can do it by recognizing this golden calf. He didn't exactly say this calf is God instead of the God of Israel. He wasn't that direct about it. But he was saying, let's just do it this way and we'll still worship God. But you don't want to trek all the way down there. That's not even our country anymore. So here again, just like Solomon, except much, much, much worse, we have a man who has made a conscious decision to directly defy the known word of the Lord. And so you know that's not going to pass by unjudged. So now we're in 1 Kings 13. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. And by the way, I wanted to show you where this was on the map because it's relevant. So here's Samaria, where Jeroboam is now reigning over northern Israel. And down here is Bethel, means the house of God, Bethel. So this prophet, who's never even named, he's called by God from Bethel to go and pronounce judgment on Jeroboam for doing this awful thing, he's entrusted with this new northern Israel. And the second he gets into power, he can't wait to turn them to idolatry. And so he's told to go down there and tell Jeroboam that his days are numbered and he's going to be in trouble. And by the way, this beautiful painting done in 1641, 
Oh, first, by the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Well, they didn't have watches and they couldn't synchronize things. So he happens to show up on the scene perfectly at the exact time that Jeroboam is leading this group and they are poised in front of this golden calf to do their new wrong kinds of worship. And so here's this unnamed prophet, and he's got a message for them. And he cries out against the altar by the word of the Lord. And he says, oh, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. You know, down there in Jerusalem and Judah, where David's line is still being passed down. Well, there's going to come a king one day whose name is Josiah on you. And keep in mind, he's, he's actually talking to this, this altar. He will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. Well, Kings don't usually like it when you interrupt their pagan worship services with pronouncements of death for people. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. Well, Jeroboam has a little taste of power here. And he doesn't appreciate this prophet coming and interrupting things. And he's really angry. By the way, this painting was done by Jean-Honoré Fragonard. He's French. And it's called Jeroboam Offering Sacrifice for the Idol. At any rate, so Jeroboam gets furiously angry when he hears this prophet say these things. And he stretches out his hand like this. And he, you know, he's all big and dramatic, sees him like that. Well, his arm freezes, and he can't take it down. And he gets really scared. In fact, the Bible says that it shrivels up, and he can't pull it back. And the altar was split apart, and his ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. So he's, oh boy. So suddenly he goes from furious and prideful to humble as humble can be, just about like that. That's what I just read to you there. And you can see him. He's going, I'm sorry, would you pray for me, please? Would you pray for my arm, please? <laughs> it's amazing how the Lord has a way of humbling people. Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. And so the man of God prays for him, and he really does get better. So he was, oh, thank you, God. And in fact, he stays humble after it's all better. He says, um, come home with me and have something to eat, and I'll give you a gift. He's really, really changed his tune. But the man of God answers the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I wouldn't go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here, for I was commanded by the word of the Lord. Okay, that is one of the most important statements in this entire lesson. I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not drink bread, or eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. Now, I don't know why God gave him those specific instructions for that time. That's not standard for prayer prophets. I have a message I want you to go give. And the rule is, 
Once you get started on the road there, you are not to drink or eat anything until you're back home. That's what I'm telling you to do. But he knew that was the word of God, and he was familiar with the voice of God, and he had his marching orders. So he took another road, and he didn't return by the way he had come to Bethel. So he was tempted. I mean, that would have probably been a real nice affair, right? Jeroboam would have been happy to show him the best that he had because he was so grateful that he had not been permanently deformed with his arm stuck up in the sky. But here's where it gets really weird, but also so applicable to us. There was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. I mean, that was quite the news story, you know, and the young boys had been out and saw, they had seen everything that had been done. And so they come home and they say, dad, you're not going to believe what happened today. And, you know, he's a prophet too. And we don't know his motivations because there's not even a hint of what they were, but the father asks them, which way did he go? And his sons show him the road. And so he says to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. Remember that one of the other rules was not just don't eat or drink anything till you get home, but you have to come home by a different way than you went. And so that direct road from Bethel to Samaria, you know, we're going down a different road and you have to kind of know the area. And the boys figured out which way he probably went. And um, so the guy says, well, saddle up the donkey for me. And so he gets on the donkey and he rides after until he finds the man of God. I mean, he doesn't know what he looks like or anything. And so he finds him sitting under an oak tree and he says, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he says, I am. And so the prophet says to him, come home with me and eat. Now, why would he do that? This is a man who's used to hearing the word of God. The man of God says, I can't turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. Okay, well, he probably already knew that if he got the full story from his sons, because I'm sure the sons were aware that Jeroboam said, come home and eat with me. And he says, no, I can't. I got to go. That's a pretty big deal to turn the king down. So here, same song, second verse. And he's probably getting pretty thirsty by now and several hours have passed and it's long past one meal. Maybe he's missed two and he really would love to get back and have something. So this prophet, this old prophet, for reasons we absolutely do not understand, says, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, Liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging from a telephone wire. <laughs> Bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Oh, well, the Lord told me to tell you. I have a direct message from him that that word that you had before, it doesn't apply anymore. God changed his mind. That thing that he said not to do, you see where this is going? Don't people today think that stuff that's in the word doesn't apply anymore and things that used to be sins aren't really sins anymore? We can do this. It's okay. Things aren't like they used to be. Same thing. 
It just has a little bit different clothes on, but it's the same story. So he was lying to him, but the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. Why? I mean, he was real clear on things when he told Jeroboam, well, probably because some time has passed and his stomach's growling and he's really thirsty and maybe it's a hot sunny day. And he's thinking, boy, I could sure use a drink of water. Whew, I'm getting so thirsty. We don't know what this old prophet's motivations were. He could have been jealous. He could have had a lack of faith in any real consequences and just wanted to be this guy's friend. He could have been someone who was totally loyal to the king and just supporting the king. Or maybe for some reason he had this evil desire to see the prophet judged and he knew good and well what would happen. But anyway, the guy is deceived and he does go back with the old prophet to the old prophet's house. And here's where it really gets strange. They're sitting at the table and the word of the Lord comes to the old prophet who had brought him back. What? He's a liar and a deceiver. Why is God speaking through him? Oh, you mean sometimes preachers whose lives are not consistent and who maybe even have scandals in their background might still be proclaiming the actual word of the Lord? And maybe we shouldn't look at the person, but we should listen to the word? Hmm, I don't know. Anyway, he cries out to the man of God who'd come from Judah. I don't know if he started to go into a trance. Or if you can tell when a prophet's getting ready to speak God's word. I mean, they're sitting at the table talking about mundane things. So where are you from? Do you have a family? How many kids do you have? Are they grown? Got any grandchildren? I don't know what they were discussing, but all of a sudden he gets kind of still and quiet or maybe trembles or looks kind of off out into space. Not sure how he did it, but he says, this is what the word of the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. Oh, a pronouncement of judgment by the very man who convinced you to do what you weren't supposed to do? And so when the man of God had finished eating and drinking, and I imagine that put quite a pall on the rest of the meal, and I bet that it probably didn't taste very good, and maybe if his mouth was full of food when he was listening to this, I don't even know if he swallowed that bite. He might have spit it out. He might have felt kind of sick, maybe even vomited. I don't know. But it was just, oh, I must have been out of my mind. What was I thinking? I was deceived. But when he had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. A lion killed a man who had been deceived. And doesn't the scripture talk about the devil going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Hmm, a picture, a symbolic picture. And some people who passed by saw the body thrown down there with the lion standing beside the body. I mean, imagine this was wild enough country back then 
that lions were still indigenous to the area and were a danger. So this isn't some big metropolis. There's vast areas of savanna or whatever kind of open country that lions need for their habitat. And they're always a danger. And you have to be prepared. But this lion just comes out of nowhere and kills him, but he doesn't eat him. And he just stands there and guards him and he doesn't tear up the donkey. And so people come by and they see this strange scene. It seems like it's supernatural because the lion's just there like a guardian. And they go and report it where the prophet lives. And so the old prophet hears about this guest of his being dead by the road. So when the old prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, it's the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. And the prophet said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they did. And he went out and found the man thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The donkey had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. And so the prophet picked up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. And he even said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried, lay my bones beside his bones. And then he also goes on to say this message that that prophet delivered, you know, against the altar when he was talking to King Jeroboam, that will certainly come true. So here's a man who was deceived and ended up giving his life for it. And yet he was a person who at one time had pronounced the word of the Lord. And then it goes on to say that sure enough, Jeroboam didn't change his evil ways. I guess after his arm was healed, the new of that kind of wore off. And he appointed priests who weren't from the tribe of Levi, and he kept that golden calf, and he didn't want the people going down to Jerusalem. Notice it says in verse 34, this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And in fact, uh, the Lord later said to Jeroboam, I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. And he goes on to say, but you've done more evil than all who lived before you. Now that would be a horrifying thing to hear from Lord God Almighty. You've made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You've aroused my anger and turned your back on me. A clear pronouncement. And then he says, because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. All cut off from Jeroboam, every last male in Israel, slave or free. Okay, so we can understand that willful, direct rebellion brings judgment from God. But strangely, in this story, we've got two things going on here. We also see that a person can become deceived. And when they're deceived they can wind up also losing their life and losing out with God. So maybe the message here is that there's two ways to sin. You can make a knowing choice like King Solomon, King Rehoboam, and King Jeroboam, or you can be deceived. Did you know that even Paul, writing about the story of Adam and Eve, 
said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 that Eve was deceived. She had her marching orders from the Lord. Do not eat of this tree. But when the serpent came along and said, you will not surely die because God knows that when you eat this, then you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. She was deceived and she thought, oh, so it's really not like that. It's okay. Oh, I must have misunderstood. And then she partakes and she brings disaster on the whole of mankind. So when a preacher who claims to be speaking for God has an attractive message, how are we going to know? I mean, if we look at this and we say, okay, I want to avoid rebellion and disobedience, and so I'm not willfully going to do anything against the Lord. We could belabor that, but there's not time. There's lots of scriptures about if you sin, you'll die, but I want God's grace to cover my sins, and so I'm not in rebellion. I don't have that mindset, but then we move on to this other I don't want to be deceived either. So how am I going to know in whatever church I'm in that what the pastor is saying is really okay or it's not okay? So this man is claiming to be speaking for God and he has this really attractive message. So you should not believe the message if it contradicts the known word of God. It doesn't matter who the speaker is. It didn't matter that the guy who told the prophet that it was really okay for him to eat and drink after all, didn't matter that he had an established reputation as a man of God who spoke the word of God, because what he said contradicted what that prophet already knew really was God's word. And also, it's especially important to note that the reason the guy wanted to believe his message in the first place is that it appealed to his flesh. Well, I'm really, really hungry and thirsty. So if somebody comes up to me and says, oh, it's okay, you can eat and drink. He didn't mean that stuff he said before. He didn't mean that. Then my flesh goes, yes, please, supper time. And then I, I partake. But we should believe the message if it agrees with the known word of God, regardless of the speaker. So if you hear someone, just like that prophet, he did give the real word of the Lord after the guy ate and drank, and they were sitting at the table. And the reason that we know it was right, even though this guy's a liar, is that what he is saying goes along with what we already know about God. He had given his instructions to the prophet. The prophet directly disobeyed, and then you would expect that there would be some consequences to that. So let's have a look at a couple of scriptures here. You know, Paul said to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But here's your rule. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Peter said 
there will be false prophets and they're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. You can count on it. That's one of the devil's tactics. He would like you to think that God's word is mostly irrelevant today and that we can do things different because now we're enlightened and we have more understanding. So these sexual morality laws in scripture that you've heard all of your life and from generations past, oh, you don't need to worry about that. We're going to do things this way now. We're going to redefine our basic institutions, and we're going to say that things that used to be sin are no longer sin. You know, John said, dear friends, don't believe every spirit. And here's how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And then Paul told the Ephesians, don't be a baby tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speak the truth in love. And that's where we miss it sometimes. We want to speak the truth of God's word, but we want to speak it in anger to people we do not love. But he says, speak the truth in love, and we will in all things grow up into him who's the head, that is Christ. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. You know, that prophet, he came with a nice house and some food that when you walked in, you could smell it cooking and you're going... I could use some of that. Boy, that smells great. And he was lying through his teeth about what God had said, and it ended up costing the guy his life. You remember the story of the Pied Piper? After he got ripped off by the town that wouldn't pay him for running the rats out? You remember what happened, right? He just played this beautiful little tune, and all the kids kind of went on automatic pilot and followed him out of the city and were drowned. Isn't that kind of a picture of Satan? And didn't Jesus say in Matthew 24, false Christs and prophets will appear and they'll perform great signs and miracles. And if it was possible, they would even deceive the elect. But don't be fooled. If somebody says, oh, the Messiah is over here, the Messiah is over here, because you'll know when I come back. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And by the way, even from Torah, we know that God is not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? God's not changeable. So if he said to that prophet, don't eat or drink and take a different path home, then you better write that down in your heart and you better do that. And so the bottom line is avoid deception. Stick with the word of God. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 